Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Edward Knight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And today on the show, we're talking about how much of a deposit should you use when you're purchasing a property. And this comes from a listener of the show who called me up and was saying, hey Ed, I'm purchasing a new build, but I've saved really hard. I've got a big 40% deposit, or I could give a 40% deposit of the purchase price. I could pay that deposit. But should I put in 20% or 40%? Of course, 20% is the minimum. And this person was working with a broker already that had some advice, but didn't quite have his head around it. And so what I want to do in today's episode is go through four different scenarios of what you could do and the scenario that was right for this investor. And actually, just as a bit of a side story before we get into it, it's always tough because when I get a phone call from a number I don't recognize, I often think it's either one of those Australian calls from like those investment companies that ring you up and try and sell you into like cannabis investments or something, or I think it's somebody (laughs) trying trying to sell me something. Do you know what I mean? Like, what are you trying to sell me? And then I felt so bad because I think I was a bit short, you know, because he was so nice. Hi, is that Ed? Yes. Who's this? (laughs) And then it was a lovely podcaster. So I was like, oh, it's one of the people. I need to pick. Don't worry. I've done that. I've done that plenty of times. Oh, it's so bad. It was my mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. So look, if you ever call me up and I'm a bit grumpy, it's because I think you're trying to sell me some some cannabis investments. But let's go through. (laughs) And don't bother emailing him either. No, no, no. That's a lost cause. Let's go through these four scenarios because actually this is a really good question and good on this person for saving up such a large deposit where that in the position to be able to do this. But even if you don't have a big deposit, you should listen to this because this gives you, you know, it's a different way of looking at some of the key concepts we talk about on the show. So walk us through kind of scenario one that this investor could do. Okay, like Ed said before, amazing that someone saved a 40% deposit. Well done. So scenario one is just to use that 40% deposit. Use all the cash and you put your 40% deposit in on the new build. But just remember you can't re-borrow against it and that's because of the LVR restrictions. So whilst you can borrow 80% at the start, the trick is that the day that the property settles, it becomes old. Now this is getting a bit confusing because now we've got this tax legislation that's come in and defines a property as a new build for 20 years It's not the same with LVR restrictions. The day a property settles or goes between a developer and someone else, it's now deemed an old property. So you can only lend 60% on it. So let's say you've got a million dollar property. So it's easy for my head at this time of day. You put your entire 40% deposit in, $400,000, and you get 600K worth of lending. Now, your minimum deposit required based on a new build was 200K, but you put in 400K. The day it settles, you go, actually, I want to buy another rental. And then you go to the bank and they'll say, well, remember, it's now an old property. You can only lend 60%. 60% of a million dollars is 600000 That's the lending you've got. So you're actually tapped out from an LVR perspective. So the good news is that one of the positives is that your cash flow is going to be great on this property. You've paid off almost half of it already. The bad news is you've lost any LVR benefit that you've got from buying new. And I think the number one rule you've got to remember in property investment is leverage and use other people's money. So don't be in too much of a hurry to put in your own money. Okay, so scenario two is to use a 20% deposit. So let's say he used a 20% cash deposit and he decides to invest the other 20% into shares, a managed fund or something else, something like that. Now, the benefit to that 
is that the discretionary 20%, the 20% he decided not to put into the investment property is liquid. So if you put it in shares or managed funds, you can pull it out at any time and go invest that into another property. So you've got that ability to go and invest again. The drawback is, is that investing in something else only makes financial sense if what we call your after-tax return is above the interest rate. So what I mean by that is, let's say that your mortgage interest rate is 3.75%, which, you know, totally realistic in today's market. And if your tax rate is 33%, say, then your investment needs to give you a 5.6% return before you are doing better than what would be the equivalent of just paying down your mortgage. And of course, what you've got to remember is paying down your mortgage or offsetting some of your interest costs is risk-free. You get that guaranteed 3.75% return because you've paid off debt. Whereas if you were investing in something that's producing a cash return, whether it be a managed fund, something like that, then that's potentially going to be taxed. So of course, we've just got to think about this. So this investor really wanted to limit their interest costs and limit their exposure to rising interest rates. So while he was like, yeah, okay, I could use a 20% cash deposit and invest in something else, he really wanted to save on those interest costs. So if he had just used a 20% deposit, great, because that money's still discretionary, but still doesn't do what he actually wanted. And that's where we get into scenario number three, Andrew, which you'd only do in some specific scenarios. Well, yeah, this is paying down your personal mortgage and then re-leveraging. Now, we're assuming in this case that this investor didn't actually have a personal mortgage because if you've saved such a drastic amount of deposit, then then probably that would have naturally gone to your mortgage anyway. But if he did, then our advice would be slightly different. So take your cash, take your 400k, pay down your personal mortgage, 400k, then re-borrow the deposit against that house but towards the investment. Now the reason you do that is because your test for tax is purpose. So if you put your money into your house and then you re-borrow it to buy an investment property, that 400k that you've re-borrowed or 200k, whatever you decide to re-borrow, that is tax deductible assuming that you're buying a new property. And of course, that gives you a better tax position. Plus, you've also got more equity in your own home. You've paid down your personal mortgage, and that's a good thing as well. Yeah, so what you'd usually do is stack the debt against your investment property. And actually, I remember being asked a question once at a seminar. This is back when we did in-person first-home buyer seminars, Andrew. And I remember somebody once raising their hand saying, hey, look, I've got enough deposit to buy an investment property and a first-home. This is like two years ago back in Christchurch when property prices were very cheap. And This is when you used to ride up on a bicycle and pretend to jump through a hula hoop. Yeah, yeah, we had great fun at those first home buyer seminars. And I remember somebody, you know, saying, yeah, I've got a deposit for two houses, what should I do? And what some people would say is, oh, cool, we'll just go buy two houses. But the more tax efficient thing to do in that scenario is to use the bigger deposit on your own home and then borrow all of the money for an investment. That's usually what would be the right situation to do or generally the thing to do. Scenario number four is what they've actually decided to do. So the final situation is to settle that property, that new build, with a 20% deposit, so the minimum deposit needed, set up an 80% loan against that property, so 80% lending. But as well as that, 
is set up 200k of that mortgage or 20% of that mortgage as a revolving credit. So again, let's go through the numbers. Million dollar property. Let's assume this person had 400k. I don't actually know what they had saved up, but it would have been quite a significant chunk of money. Pay 20% as the deposit and then revolving credit facility, borrow the rest of the money, but set up the extra 20% as a revolving credit facility and park your money in there. Now, the benefit of that is you are immediately saving on your interest costs, but because it's in a revolving credit, you can take that money out at any time. So you're saving on interest costs, but you can redraw that. And that was actually the thing that the investor in this situation just needed to click in his head was, that's why I'm going to set it up this way. I'm going to use a 20% deposit technically. I'm going to apply for an 80% mortgage, but I'm going to have part of that as a revolving credit or offset. So you get that best of both worlds. You're saving on interest costs, but you've got the flexibility to go ahead and use that again. And in fact, you know, just personally, I've got a 30K offset account. And this is a bit different from a revolving credit. It's just saying, cool, I've got essentially two accounts. One is I've got 30K on a floating interest rate. And then if I put money into the other account, they offset each other. So if I put in 10K into my offset account, then I only pay interest on 20K because there's 30K worth of debt, 10K worth of cash in there. Right now, there's only 4K in there because I just took out a whole heap of cash in order to pay it for a deposit. But the benefit was, in the meantime, while I was saving up cash, I was able to save on interest costs during that period. Well, let me ask you this, Andrew. Why is all of this a bit complicated? Because it sounds pretty technical and complex, right? It can be. And I guess the biggest thing is probably the hurdles around the LVR restrictions. So while you've got exemptions, they only apply when you're, I guess, setting up a loan. Once you've drawn down the actual facility and you've got the property with your bank, then the new rules apply. So you're bound by the 40% deposit for an investment property in any way, shape or form. The day it settles is really, really important that you've got it done correctly and you've got to be really careful and it's why that often we'll talk about doing things like split banking because, of course, you might get 100% lending because the bank's going to put 20% against your house and 80% against the new investment property and then if you settle it all with one bank, then they're going to require an extra 20% against your house, bring it to 40% in the event that you reapply for finance. And so, of course, that could leave you quite limited and erode any usable equity you've got in your own house. So I think that's why it's really important to get good advice and also to get good tax advice because the difference in the scenario where you can apply that money to your house or the investment property, your debt level is going to be the same. It's just how the IRD are going to look at it and how they're going to treat your position when it comes to which parts of your loan are deductible and which parts But Ed, tell us, how did the call end once you realised that you weren't to be grumpy? Well, I think the first thing to remember is, of course, I'm not a financial advisor, nor am I a mortgage advisor. So I, I am always hesitant to give personal advice because I am not licensed to give personal advice. And obviously, if you if somebody is working with a financial advisor, they have got more information. But often people want to talk about these things. You know, if you listen to the podcast, sometimes naturally, Andrew, people ask you things as well because you want that other perspective since you listen to the podcast. And the really good thing about this scenario was this person was working with a mortgage advisor at Squirrel. I can't remember which mortgage advisor, but the good news was that it turned out that I walked the investor through these situations, how to think about them. And you know, he said, oh, cool. That last one, the revolving credit, 
that's the one my mortgage advisor has suggested that I go down the path of, which was quite good because I was like, oh, good. First of all, the mortgage advisor is giving good advice, and then also I'm obviously walking <laughs> them through the right You've got scenarios. it right. <laughs> Basically, yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking mainly. So, I mean, the good thing was that sometimes when you're learning about this sort of stuff, it just takes something to click in order to be like, okay, sweet, I've got it. And for this investor, it was just saying, okay, I get it. I'm going to use a 20% deposit, but I'm still going to put my cash to work because of that revolving credit, and I'll have the availability to redraw that. So ended up really happy. You know, This person then has the confidence to know, sweet, I get what's going on. I understand what the strategy is now and why it's working for me. So really good result in the end, I'd say. Look, let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, other thing just to remember is if you want to learn more about property with Andrew and I, make sure to check out our YouTube channel because every Wednesday we release a brand new video, teach you something new about property investment right here in New Zealand. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed Knight. I'm Andrew Nicholl. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of using the property market. Until next time. <laughs>